0: Jesus, You are worthy. You are worthy to receive all honor and all glory, everything in us. Father, we worship You in spirit and in truth. In the truth of these lyrics, that there is nothing outside of Your rule and reign that is not under Your authority. There is not anything that has been created that does not respond to You in worship, Lord. We all should respond to you in worship. So in truth, we worship you because you are worthy. You are there, it's, a, it's a matter of fact that you deserve worship. And so we worship you according to that truth. We also worship you in our spirit with every part of our will, with every part of our being from the tips of our fingers to the tips of our toes, Lord, being created in your image doing what we are designed to do you knit us together you breathed your life in us and so father we offer that back to you with our will and our spirit and we say you are worthy jesus to be the king to be my king here today this morning and not just today but from now until forevermore you are king So we submit to your authority. We submit to your rule. We submit to the authority of your word. And we ask now that you speak through Tim as we unpack this, unpack the scripture, Lord. And I pray that you would, you would prick our hearts, Lord. That you would bring conviction where conviction is needed. You would break parts of our heart that need broken that you would restore parts of our heart that need restoration because you are a God of rescue and you are a God of the eternal. And so, Father, that's what we long to see here today is for you to establish hearts in eternal rescue. We love you. Thank you so much for loving us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
1: Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us for worship here at 10.30 this morning in um, our youth room. Still uh, worshiping here for a season of time, and thank you for your flexibility in that. If it if it feels a little stuffy or tight in here, there is room out in the gymnasium where we have um, overflow seating available. And if anybody walks in at 11.30 today, we'll just assume... That the time change got to them, but the way it works is if you walk in at 1130 today, then at the next time change you're required to come an hour early or we don't <laughs> believe you. Um, but thank you for for being here, for prioritizing worship with um, a little bit of snow on the ground, I guess is what we call that. But um, we are going to enter into Luke chapter 20 this morning. But before we do, there's a few things um, to know. Uh, in the gymnasium is where we kind of have our lobby set up right now, and there's there's three different things in there that are important to be aware of right now. Number one, there are elder ballots for every member family in the church, and the way this works is if you are a, a member family, you have an envelope. The envelopes are one per family, and inside the ba- inside the envelope is the right number of ballots. For every member in your household above 16 years of age. And so, if you have had a child that has joined as a member of the church through their own testimony and own confession of faith, then they will have, if they're over 16, they'll have their own um, ballot in there. Otherwise, it would just be for the adult members of the house. Um, We need you to take those. And I would really encourage you to take those this week and pray through them and consider them carefully. Uh, Every male member of the church over 18 years of age is listed on the ballot, and they're put into different categories. And you'll see who are our current elders, who are our pastors, who are deacons, who are new members. And we have some some restrictions in that new members, members have to be here for two years in order to be eligible for elder nomination, things like that. That's all explained on the sheet. So follow the sheet. But on the back of that is a list of New Testament qualifications for serving as an elder. Um, And those come from 1 Timothy and from Titus. I'd encourage you to prayerfully consider both the New Testament teaching there and the list of names that you have on the other side so that we can all make informed decisions about those men that we see as fitting those qualifications and and who God is raising up to serve as elders for the next term. We only actually have one elder rotating off of the board right now, and we are flexible on the number that we might add, depending on how God moves through the congregation in this voting process. So you'll see that on the sheet. I would really encourage you to prayerfully, carefully take your time with that sheet, and um, those ballots are due back a week from tomorrow. So you can get it today. You can fill it out today if you want to, if you feel like you're ready, Um, but you can also bring it back next week and submit it next week or submit it to the church office during the week or anytime by noon Monday, a week from tomorrow. Um, Those ballots can be placed in the offering box. There is um, and the offering boxes are labeled. There's one back here on the counter. There's one in the gymnasium. Um, as we are worshiping in this building, we have those small boxes available for tithes and offerings, and we're using those for the elder ballots as well. So please make note of that, um, and, uh, and please be a, a part of selecting um, the elders that God is raising up. We we really want this to be a joint effort of God by His Spirit moving in the congregation to nominate for elders to approve in order to um, strengthen our leadership over the next season of time. Um, and we will give you the results of those as the process is completed. Once the elder process is completed, then we'll move straight into deacons. So you'll be hearing me talk about this leadership nomination process for the next few weeks. Uh, also. Yesterday, we were supposed to have a Rebuilding Hope workday, but we postponed that because of the weather, and that will now be April the 2nd. And that will be 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Saturday, April the 2nd. We'll be working with Jim Boyd, who has spoken here before, Rebuilding Hope. It's a mission partner we've had for a number of years. Um, And we've got two projects. One will be uh, constructing a wheelchair ramp. One will be... um, kind of doing a little bit of demolition of the building and also clearing out and organizing the contents of that building. So we have jobs for men, women, older children, highly skilled, unskilled, um, physically fit, physically unfit, all of that. <laughs> I'm not going to define that for you. You define that for yourself. But we have um, opportunities where where many different people can serve. So So please, sign up in the gymnasium for that, and uh, we'd love for you to be a part of service that day. Um, also, we have a men's ministry lunch uh, uh, next week on March the 20th, immediately after the service. You don't have to sign up. You can come if you don't sign up, but there won't be enough food if you don't sign up, so you should sign up so that there's enough food. Um, and that, So that will just be um, over in the other building, in the Backstage Café, um, Sunday, March the 20th, immediately after this service, the 10:30 the service. Um, we also have a movie night on March the 27th, and you'll be hearing more about that in the weeks to come. And uh, we just want you to no- make note of these opportunities to get connected, get involved. Um, Sunday night, We have um, great stuff going on uh, this Sunday night. We have youth meeting as normal, Awana meeting as normal, several small groups. Um, Wednesday night prayer meeting um, has just been particularly rich the last few weeks. Please join us for that. That's Wednesday nights at 7. Look for other opportunities to be connected and involved um, beyond just uh, Sunday mornings. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 20. When I was in middle school, my school promoted this incredible opportunity. We'll use the scare quotes for that incredible opportunity to come on a Saturday to school to pay money in order to have your reading speed and comprehension improved. I just thought the whole thing was a racket. I was not interested in this thing at all. But there were some. That were. And you know those kind of people that are all about getting the best scholarships and they're 14 years old and they're already planning their future and they want to make sure that they can read and retain everything (laughs) they, they possibly can in as little time as they can so they can get the best scholarship and get into whatever career. Those people exist and those people love that sort of thing. Everybody else was not interested Some people were forced by their parents against their will to participate in this thing. But they billed it as these multiple... I think it was like three Saturdays. And it was, you know, a few hundred dollars, a couple hours on a Saturday for three Saturdays in a row to come and learn about reading comprehension and particularly speed reading with higher levels of comprehension. So I didn't go for obvious reasons. And I asked later my friends that did go for not-so-obvious reasons, Uh, why, What, what was the whole purpose of this, what did you learn? And no joke, the valedictorian of the class in front of me, he told me. He said, this is what we did. We did all these assessments. We did all these, like you read these things and then you write about it. You read these things and you bubble your answers about it. And you do all these things to try to figure out what your reading rate is and your reading comprehension is, all those sort of things. And then we learned one skill, one takeaway skill, from those three Saturdays, six or seven hours, of whatever it was, of Saturday instruction. He said, for speed reading, here's what you do. You take your finger, and you put it on the middle of the page, under the first line, and as you read, you just move your finger down the page. Because what happens, most of us read more slowly than we could, because our eyes move more than they should. And so what, what that trick does for you, is it helps you to move your eye less, because your, your eyes focus on your finger and the words, but because your finger is in the middle of the page, they don't dart around and get distracted and move line to line and then back. And it was actually a decent skill. I paid nothing for that skill. <laughs> but he was a valedictorian, so he obviously knew more than I did, and he, his parents paid a lot of money for him to develop that skill and then give it to me for free. But now we have all this research about reading and comprehension, in particular as it relates to words on a printed page versus words on a screen. And some of these same, same principles apply when you're reading on a screen because what the, the reason your finger helps you read on a page is that it decreases eye movement and decreases distraction. And every study that has, has evaluated reading comprehension from a printed page versus a lighted screen, shows that people tend to comprehend, retain more from a print, printed page. Because screens involve distraction. Screens, your, your eyes move differently as you're, as you're scrolling versus as your eyes go down a page. Your, your phones are used for other things, and therefore, as you're reading something, that distraction your, your brain is signaling, well, this phone is oft also used to watch YouTube videos and play games and send messages and, and I just got an email alert and all those sort of things that the phone does to your mind limits your focus in the reading. And we have all of this research now that shows us good practical approaches to reading well and comprehending well. And see, Christians... This should be vitally important to us. Good reading skills should matter to us. Because the Reformers called the church the creature of the word, in that it is the word of God that actually creates the church, the word of God that forms, instructs what a church is to operate like. We are people of the book. And in a similar sense, the Jews were like that too. God revealed himself through words on a written page that they were to learn, they were to study, and they were to retain. And so, Christians, we should take it so, we should be more, um, we should put a higher priority on reading and reading retention than a secular person because we consider this to be the very word of God that He is speaking to us. And as I read it aloud today, it is as if God, by His Spirit, is speaking to us through the words written on a page. So the way we read matters. And today, as we unpack Luke 20, we're going to see three Jewish groups that read the Bible differently. Read the Bible a lot. And some would say, read the Bible well. But their conclusions that they derive from the Scriptures are not what God is intending in the writing of the scriptures. And Jesus is exposing them one by one. And there's actually two stories in Luke 20 that we're, we're going to do today, 27 through, or 20, yeah, 27 through 47. But there's one story that Matthew and Mark include sandwiched between these two stories that we'll jump over to Matthew 22:4 really quickly to see how Jesus exposes the inability of three different groups of Jewish leaders to read the Bible well. And as we're talking about reading the Bible, we're going to put our eyes on living in two ages, because as Jesus is exposing their poor reading, he is exposing the fact that they do not know what it is like to live in the age to come, and they do not know who is the Lord of the age to come. So first, we're going to look at the Sadducees and the way they read the Bible in Luke um, chapter 20, starting in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. So the, the context, Jesus is at the temple in Jerusalem. And you remember, we told you a couple weeks ago that Jesus comes in to, the, to Jerusalem on a Sunday. He clears out the temple. He makes space for teaching of the word in the temple. And then every day that week, up until he is arrested and eventually crucified, every day that week, Jesus is found instructing people in the temple, drawing great crowds to himself. And Jesus is literally, in in the truest definition of the term, he is a cultural phenomenon at this point. And maybe we don't like talking about Jesus as if he's some sort of celebrity, but in terms of ancient Jerusalem, he had that effect on on the community, on the society. Everybody was coming to see what Jesus was saying and what trouble he was stirring up that day. Not because Jesus was all about stirring up trouble, but because people were coming to catch him. People were coming to trick him. Last week we talked about how Jesus was asked the question about paying taxes. And Jesus had to give a perfect answer in order to pacify the crowd. Because in the crowd were those that were very focused on Jewish law. and and consider Jewish law as a priority over Roman law. And then there were others that were very loyal to Rome and considered Roman law to be more significant than Jewish law. And how was Jesus going to answer this question about paying taxes and living in faithfulness to God and thread that needle to get just the right answer? Well, he did it. And they were stumped. And they were silenced. But it didn't stop the fact that multiple groups of Jewish leaders, multiple groups of authority, wanted to trap him in his words, to disprove him as a, as a rabbi or as a prophet, and try to turn the crowds against him. So here is the attempt from this group known as the Sadducees. We haven't talked about the Sadducees a lot. All we see from Luke's um, description of them is that obviously they live in Jerusalem, and there are those that deny there is a resurrection. The Sadducees had this weirdly unique theological perspective That this life was all there is. That it was right to follow the law of God now, to offer sacrifices in the temple, and to live in obedience now, but there was no resurrection, eternal kingdom, there was no life to come. That is the theological position of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were therefore opposed to the Pharisees. Okay, We've talked about the Pharisees a lot. And the Pharisees, they had more control in the smaller towns in Judea, where Jesus does most of his ministry. So uh, Capernaum, Galilee, Nazareth, those areas, the Pharisees have control. The Sadducees have control in Jerusalem. Okay, So as we're, we're seeing these things, in the last week of Jesus' life, we're going to see warring factions of Jewish leaders try to come at them from different angles. And sometimes you're going to see one warring faction be like, hey, that was a really good answer you gave to those guys over here. And that's exactly what happens today. So, who were the Sadducees? Well, it may not be, it's not clear in English that the word Sadducees actually is derived from the word that means descendants of Zadok. Zadok shows up in the Old Testament and is prominent. He is a high priest in David and Solomon's time. And it is the sons of Zadok that are the high priests in Jerusalem in the time after the Babylonian exile. And it is only the sons of Zadok that serve in that position. So think of the sons of Zadok as this very prominent, important family within the, the Levite tribe, within the society, the religious life of Israel. So to say you were a descendant of Zadok was to already claim for yourself a high position in Jewish society and a high position of authority in Jewish religious life. We're part of that first Family of the priesthood. We are part of that main prominent family. So to say you were a descendant of Zadok is a big deal. But it also means that the descendants of Zadok had earthly power and authority. And so for, for the Sadducees to then say there is no resurrection, there is no age to come, that this life is all there is. Well, the Sadducees were wealthy, they were notable, they had comfortable lives in the big city. The Pharisees, however, the Pharisees were obsessed with the law and obsessed with obedience and following God as as particularly as possible with the minutia of the law. They lived in small towns. The, the, The Sadducees were a limited group. You couldn't just all of a sudden become a son of Zadok. You were either a son of Zadok or you were not. The Pharisees were an open group. You could study with the Pharisees long enough, learn a lot, memorize enough law that you could become a Pharisee yourself. So the Pharisee movement grew in the smaller towns while the Sadducees maintained control in Jerusalem. That's an important context as we approach the way they're reading the Bible differently and the way they're gleaning different conclusions from what they're reading and how Jesus st- walks into the middle, into the Temple Mount, and says, you guys are all wrong. You're all missing. It. Okay, so here's the question for the day. Levirate marriage. Deuteronomy chapter 25. This is what the Sadducees are quoting to Jesus here in Luke 20. If a man dies who is married and he has no child, the, the old covenant law, Deuteronomy 25, requires that his brother then marry his wife so that they can have a child that would take the, the name of the dead, uh, the, the dead first husband, basically. And that new son would become the heir of of all that the first husband had. And he would become legally the son, not of his actual biological father, but his biological uncle who had died childless. That was a, that was a, um, a system put into the Old Covenant in part to protect the woman. You see what happens with, with the, the terrible story of Judah and Tamar um, in the book of Genesis. You see what happens when that doesn't go well. And then you see the beauty of what happens in the story of Ruth and Boaz, as that similar law is followed in the story of Ruth and Boaz. You see that come up in the Old Covenant a couple of times. But what the Sadducees are doing, let me be clear, they are not asking a question about marriage. They're asking a question about resurrection. And Luke tells you that. Luke tells you the Sadducees, who don't believe there's a resurrection, asked a question about marriage in the resurrection, in the eternal kingdom. This question was not some dude sitting in the back with this, this burden on his back of being like, I just don't understand this scripture. I don't understand the eternal kingdom. Jesus, explain it to me. That, that's not what happened. This was a question that the Sadducees had already asked to the Pharisees to stump them. This was a question built out of a, a um, faction of Judaism that did not believe in the resurrection. And how did they make a joke out of the resurrection and the idea of the resurrection that people like the Pharisees and the scribes and other Jews held to so firmly? This was their way of making light of it, of making the doctrine of resurrection and the eternal kingdom seem silly. Because God says that a woman might marry successively a number of men, so let's create this ridiculous scenario where it's not just two or three, but it's seven Let's create the most ridiculous scenario we can come up with, and then let's throw shade at this whole doctrine of the resurrection altogether. That was the purpose here. The Pharisees and others couldn't answer the question, so the Sadducees brought it to Jesus. Jesus, can you answer this question for us? Jesus' response is recorded not just in Luke 20, but also in Matthew and Mark. And I love what Matthew records, because the first sentence, I, I, we've only read, we've, we've stopped it at the question. But the first sentence of Jesus' reply in the book of Matthew is, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You're looking in the Scriptures for the answers, but you're wrong in even asking this question because you're denying the Scriptures and you're denying the power of God revealed in the Scriptures. So let's pick up in Luke twenty thirty four and see Jesus' answer. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, scribes are a different group than Pharisees. Some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared ask him any question. So let's wrap our heads around Jesus' response here first. First, Matthew twenty two thirty nine or 29 says, You are wrong. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Immediately humbling them. You think you know Scripture so well that you're going to come to me, you're going to quote Deuteronomy chapter 25, and you're going to think that Deuteronomy chapter 25 makes the resurrection look ridiculous. You don't know Deuteronomy chapter 25, and you don't know the doctrine of the resurrection because you don't appreciate the power of God to raise dead people to life. And let me tell you something, if they didn't believe in an eternal kingdom and a resurrection of the dead, they were not going to believe in what Jesus was about to do in the next few days. And this was a, again, this is a group that had earthly power and notoriety. They were the rich leaders. The Pharisees were actually fairly poor by comparison. The Pharisees had some notoriety in the community, but the Pharisees had more appeal within the poorer crowds. The Sadducees, they just looked down on the poor because they had the worldly authority. So what is Jesus saying here? Because it it gets complicated, and frankly, there are some things that Jesus says that we might not like that much, that actually, like, if you have a a healthy marriage, you you look at what Jesus says here, and you're like, really, Jesus? Like, that's not going to continue at all into eternity? So let's let's look at what he says. He, He says, number one, there is no marriage in the age to come. And recognize, as, as Jesus is talking here, he says, the sons of this age marry. So marriage is intended for this age. But then in verse 35, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age. That means the age ahead, the age to come. And so he's distinguishing here between life in this age and life in the age to come. And here's one of the key principles of Scripture that we miss so often. Because we can make two different errors in the comparison between this age and the age to come. Sometimes, we can can take the posture of grin and bear at Christianity, where we say, this age is really terrible, really harmful, it hurts, it's not good, but the age to come is great. So, what we're going to do is we're just going to grin and bear it, and we're just going to survive as well as we can until we get to the age to come. That's, That's a little bit of an error on there, and I'll tell you why. The other extreme is not the grin and bear at Christianity. The other extreme is heaven is just like now, or heaven is here now approach to Christianity that says we should be living in the eternal kingdom now. So all the promises of the eternal kingdom, everything we see in Scripture, all of that's available to us now. Heaven is just like this, and if we would just walk with more faith and live with more energy and confidence in God's power, then we would see more of heaven on earth. We could go... We could go wrong both ways. We, we don't need to approach this life as if this life is always going to be terrible, but it's okay because we'll have the next life. We need more hope for this life than that. But we need a little bit more realism for this life than the view that says, well, we can bring heaven to earth with just a little bit more faith and a little bit more energy and, and dependence. Because the, the truth is, Jesus does say that everyone want, who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. Jesus does say, in this life you will have trouble, take heart, I have overcome the world. So, so bringing those two perspectives into balance in which we say, yes, this world is full of trial and suffering and pain. And that will continue to the end of the age. That there will be trial, suffering, and pain until the very end of the age. And the new age is so much better. But we've got to find a way to properly bring the hope of the age to come into the age in which we live so that we don't live defeated Christian lives in the here and now. Because if you live in such a way, in that grin and bear at Christianity, you're not going to live on mission because you don't have hope for the lost. Because why why would you be out there in mission serving people? You're going to feel like everything you do is just going to be a drop in a bucket and it's not going to really make a significant change. We have to have hope enough in God's kingdom being un, unveiled through the work of the church that we can see the church does actually bring good in the world. The church can contribute to society. The church can expand the, the, the boundaries of Christ's kingdom and the gates of hell cannot withstand the expanse of the church. So properly approaching that is, is, the, is properly balancing these two cliffs so that we don't fall off either and recognizing we can have hope for this life but we have hope for this life with full realization that in this life we will still continue to struggle. So we can make an error, like the Sadducees, of thinking that the age to come looks too much like the age that is here. And We can also make an error of saying the age to come looks nothing like the age that we live in now. So the, Pharisees, or the Sadducees thought that if marriage existed in the age to come, or in the age that we live in now, then it must exist somehow in the age to come. And Jesus says, no, no, no. There are some things for which the purpose is for this age, and there is no purpose for them in the age to come. So what does the Scripture say about marriage that would put marriage into that category? Well, what we learn about marriage from Scripture is that there are a few purposes. Number one, uh, procreation is an obvious purpose for marriage. Fill the earth and subdue it and fill the earth and, and subdue it. You, you fill it by getting married and having offspring. That's, that's a part of the purposes of marriage. Now That's not the only purpose of marriage. There's also a purpose of of wholeness and completion in marriage in which God looks at Adam and says, it is not good for him to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so God, in the creation of marriage, creates a companionship out of that to complete what was lacking in the man. And then the other category is God tells us, as husbands and wives, to come together in a one-flesh relationship. The husband leaves his father and mother, cleaves uh, cleaves to his wife, and the two become one-flesh. And then we are called to battle against the desires of our flesh within a one-flesh relationship, which leads us to the conclusion that marriage is also meant for the purpose of the pursuit of holiness. That if you want to become more like Christ yourself, then your closest ally in that endeavor is your spouse. Because the spouse is going to be there by the power of the Holy Spirit to expose your sin because it's there. And And to help you then work through that sin and encourage you. Not beat you down and say, boy, you're a sinful loser. But to encourage you and say, this is what Christ demands of you. This is the pattern that Christ has set for you. So from that, three simple purposes for marriage. Procreation, yeah, that's there but also companionship and completion so that what is lacking in one spouse can be filled by the other spouse, but also so that the two spouses would together as one flesh pursue pursue maturity in Christ and be conformed into the image of Christ. Now, what would those purposes hold in the age to come? Jesus says there's no marriage in the age to come because there's no death. So There's no need for procreation in the age to come. There is no longer any death. There's no need for more people to be born to continue the human race on. At that point, the human race is completed as the age to come enters in. There's also no emptiness. There's no need for completion of what is lacking within one spouse because we are completely and fully in the presence of God in his eternal kingdom. God is the perfect father. Christ is the perfect bridegroom. We need no other spouse to fill that need for us in the eternal kingdom. And also, the, the pursuit of holiness purpose, we are then in the age to come as we enter into Christ's eternal kingdom. We are fully then conformed to the image of Christ. And there is no more sin. There is no more weakness. There's no more pain. There's no, no disease. And so we are completed on that day. And so what Jesus is making the case for in part is marriage doesn't carry over into the age to come because there's no purpose for it. But we need not diminish the beautiful purposes of marriage in this life. Now, I admit, this is a hard doctrine for me because I kind of like marriage. I I like the idea of marriage. I enjoy my marriage to my wife. It is good. What Jess and I have is good and beautiful. And to say that in the age to come, that's going to, to go away or going to change is not it's not exactly what I would want. It's not the way I want God to write the story. But I know that my hesitation there comes from the fact that I don't fully recognize and appreciate the fullness of what the age to come is like. And, and God is telling us, if you would take your, take your selfish, selfish assumptions out of your approach to God's word and God's kingdom, then you would see that God's story is better than our story. But even uh, Jonathan Edwards one of the most well-known notable theologians within american history. Jonathan Edwards' final words to his wife negated what Jesus is saying here. Because he said he he in writing a, or in sharing a message with his daughter, he asked his daughter to write down a message for his wife. And in that message for his wife, the final words of Jonathan Edwards the great theologian, he held out hope that what he called an uncommon union, and that it was uncommonly good. Their marriage, he held out hope that it would continue into eternity, because emotionally it feels so beautiful and rich. And when you've lost a loved one, then you're thinking, well, well, what happens? Are are we going to be reunited? Am I going to be reunited with my spouse who has who has passed on? Is there going to be this great, you know, at the funeral? The preacher told me that we were going to be reunited someday. How does that work? And the truth is that that does still happen. I do believe that we do recognize those that we knew in this life in the age to come. We do maintain relationships at one level with those that we knew in the age to come. We do recognize those that we loved, those that we cared for, those that invested in us, those that we invested in. And those relationships continue in a beautiful way. But the marriage relationship in particular is different. And in fact, all of our relationships change as we enter into the to the holy, um, the eternal kingdom, because again, God is the perfect father. So my relationship, my dad's gonna change because God is my perfect father, and now my dad's my brother. And and when I enter into the eternal kingdom, my relationship to Jess is gonna change too. Because Christ is the perfect bridegroom, and we together are a part of his church, his bride. I don't understand exactly how that works in the age to come. And Jesus gives us glimpses all throughout Scripture of what the age to come looks like. But I know that the promise here is that it is good. And if you read Scripture wrongly, if you read Scripture with your own assumptions, you're going to lead to wrong conclusions here. But think about it. If your family life is not good, has any measure of brokenness, either in your relationship to father, relationship to spouse, this is great news. Because you still retain the hope of a perfect family. In fact, you retain not just the hope, but the promise of a perfect family. A true and better father, a true and better bridegroom. So that's number one, what Jesus says. There's no marriage in the age to come. And it's a hard doctrine, but it's a true doctrine. Number two, life is better in the age to come. Those two have to go hand in hand. But life is better in the age to come. And, And in this, Jesus is saying... Our existence will be exalted, will be different from the way it is in this life. He says that we will be equal to angels. And let me tell you what I, I think he means there. Because 1 Corinthians 6 actually says that human beings will judge the angels. That actually 1 Corinthians 6 puts human beings above the angels. And, and, the, and the scriptures teach that human beings were created in the image of God, whereas angels were not created in the image of God. So what Jesus is saying here in being like the angels is saying that we will be like the angels in being eternal beings in the fullness of the presence of God. It's not an authority. We have equal authority as the angels. We actually, as the pinnacle of God's creation, created in his image as his sons and daughters, we take a place above the angels in the eternal kingdom to reign with God over his creation because sons of God means heirs of God sons of God, daughters of God, become heirs of God's eternal kingdom and reign with him. And then finally, the last thing Jesus says in in response to the question is, God is not the God of the dead. God is not the God of past tense. God is the God of present tense children. And he hearkens back to, to the burning bush, he says, okay, you want to combat me with Deuteronomy chapter 25, I'm going to move back to Exodus with you. Do you remember when Moses was called for the first time? Long before Moses wrote anything about leveret marriage in Deuteronomy 25, God called Moses to himself and this is how he did it. He showed up in a burning bush. And when Moses asked who he was, God answered in the present tense, I am. And he answered in the present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, and Jacob, presuming, assuming with the language that God spoke that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob continued, that they still lived in the present tense. He didn't say, I am the God who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It, it, it's, a, it's an argument. Jesus is making a theological argument from the tense that God uses in his quotation to Moses. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive, Jesus says. How do you know they're alive? Because they were alive in Exodus when God showed up in the burning bush, and God, they're alive today. And that's, that is where the hope of this passage really shines through, because that's what, what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4. He closes that first letter to the church in Thessalonica to say, we do not grieve as those who have no hope, meaning we grieve, Christians, we grieve. When you lose somebody that you love, you grieve. It is good and right and proper. It's biblical to grieve. And yet, we don't grieve as the world would. We don't grieve without hope. But we grieve in hope because we know there will be a restoration. We know that the dead are not gone forever. We know that those who pass from this life enter into the age to come. And as they enter in, they are either going to be a part of that final resurrection when Jesus descends from the clouds and Jesus calls up the dead in Christ to raise out of the graves and then calls us who remain to meet the Lord in the air. That's First Thessalonians 4. Either that is going to be the, the, um, the future of those who die in Christ or the future for those that die without Christ is going to be to be entered into the place of eternal punishment in the age to come. And so there's great hope here. We don't grieve without hope because we know that the resurrection is coming. The Sadducees, they had stuff figured out in the world, but they had no hope for the age to come. And that was the problem. And that caused them to read scripture wrongly. Now, in Luke, Jesus confronts the Sadducees, and in verse, 40, in verse 39, you see the scribes like his answer. And then Jesus goes right after the scribes because they like his answer. And it's like the scribes are sitting there distrusting the Sadducees, and the scribes like that he is able to answer the Sadducees, and then the scribes are like, boy, that was great. And then Jesus turns and goes to them. In Matthew and and Mark, there's there's actually another story sandwiched between, and that is the story of the Pharisees asking a question. Because why would the Pharisees be left out of any of this discussion? There's three factions in play here. The Sadducees who we describe, the Pharisees who we describe, and the scribes, who are those that literally copied the law. They literally would take one papyrus and a fresh papyrus, and they would copy what this papyrus said onto the fresh papyrus so that the Word of God could be preserved, so that generations ahead could read the Old Covenant Scriptures. It was an important calling. It was an important job that led to a whole lot of pride. Why? Because the Bible depended on them. Because God needed scribes in order to deliver the Bible and protect the Bible into the next generation. They read it more than anybody else, so they read it with a great deal of spiritual pride. And they read it with a great degree of, of self-importance. Because we are the guys that protect the truth of the Scriptures. We are the guys that copy those words day after day. And so therefore, we're the ones that know it best. So, But the Pharisees, before we go to the scribes, let's look at the Pharisees in Matthew 22 just quickly. We know this story, so we don't even have to go there. Matthew 22, verse 36, the Pharisees respond to Jesus stumping the Sadducees with this. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? This tells you everything you need to know about the difference between Sadducees and Pharisees. Sadducees are obsessed with the resurrection. They say it didn't happen, so they ask a question about the resurrection. The Pharisees are obsessed with the law, so they ask a question about which is the greatest commandment in the law. And we know the answer. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. There's a lot of Deuteronomy here in this passage. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he quotes the second. He says, I'll go give you two for the price of one. You asked about one, I'll give you two. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And there he stumps the Pharisees. He stumps the Sadducees in their attempt to disprove the resurrection, and he tells the Sadducees, you're wrong because you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And then he stumps the Pharisees for their misinterpretation of the law by giving them what the law really focuses on. And they can't answer him at all. And now, he turns to the scribes. Verse 41. He said to them, meaning to the scribes, the scribes who commended his answer, he says to them in verse 41, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus called him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. I love that. He's talking to the scribes, asking a biblical question, and then where everyone else can hear, he talks about the scribes. He's not talking to the scribes anymore. He's talking to everybody else about them. Beware, verse 46, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So, the Sadducees, you're wrong because you don't trust the scriptures and you don't trust the power of God. And the Scribes, you're wrong because you walk around with too much pride. So what is the nature of this point that Jesus is making here? Well, I said the Sadducees are obsessed with the resurrection. The the Pharisees are obsessed with the law. And the scribes are obsessed with the right understanding of the Scripture. And they were those that would say, Aha! The Messiah can't be God. Because the Messiah is a descendant of David. The Messiah is clearly, in Scripture, a son of David. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, you're, you're right, but you're only part right because let me take you to this scripture and we will expose to you from, from David's own words from the Psalms that David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So David calls the Messiah Lord. How can David call the Messiah Lord if the Messiah is just the son of David? He is making it very clear to everybody in his hearing The Messiah is not below David, and David knows that, so you guys should know it too. David doesn't put himself above the Messiah. David calls the Messiah Lord. Therefore, we should all recognize that the Messiah is Lord, not just of David, but Lord of all. And so the scribes would be hesitant to to accept that because they had their interpretation. And remember, they were the experts. The scribes are sometimes translated as lawyers, sometimes translated teachers of the law, sometimes translated experts in the law, depending on your, your um, English translation. These are the guys that were the experts. They knew the book, and they still missed it. See, the, script, the scribes read with pride, and that's what Jesus exposes in verse 46. They like their long robes. The long robes make them feel important. They love long greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the feasts. Jesus said, beware. Beware of those that exercise spiritual pride and act like they have all of the answers. So from this, we have three different factions of Jewish leaders of the day. And there's, there's more. We haven't talked about the Sanhedrin, which we will in a couple of weeks. We haven't talked about the Herodians, that was the pro-Roman group of Jews. We've talked about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And Jesus exposes right here in these three different stories how each of them read the scriptures wrongly. The scribes misread scripture because they read it with too much pride. The Pharisees misread scripture because they're so obsessed in obedience of the law and finding a way to control their own behavior and also control the behavior of those around them because the Pharisees took control over people's lives in their teaching of the law. And the Sadducees read the Bible to reinforce their own societal status. And the resurrection can't happen because look at how good we have it right now. We don't need the resurrection, we got life figured out because we're the rich guys that everybody likes, that everybody looks up to. And in each of those, taking their own personal assumptions, their own sin, their own pride and self-centeredness into the scriptures, cause them to misread the scriptures. So I told you at the beginning, We're people of the book. We're people that that place a high value on this as the very words of God. So therefore, we need to check ourselves in the way we read. We need to read with great humility and dependence upon God by His Spirit speaking to us through the words. And not us coming with spiritual pride as if we have it all figured out. When we come to the Scriptures, we don't come to the Scriptures to finish our reading for the day. We come to the Scriptures to be transformed and fueled for the day. We come to the Scriptures to be conformed into the image of Christ, not to check a box in our reading plan, not to be able to tell everybody else that we read the Bible for the day. And so the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, did they read the Bible? Sure. Did it help them spiritually? No. No, it actually moved them farther away from acceptance of the Messiah. So I'm going to ask the group to come up and lead us in a song, but I'm going to close us this, this way. When Scripture confuses you, trust Jesus for the answers. So the mistake of all of these groups is they looked at the Scriptures as a way to trick Jesus. We look at the Scriptures as a way to trust Jesus. When things confuse us, when things aren't super clear, we come to Christ in the Christian community to seek out those answers. Do you think Jesus is afraid of your questions? He wasn't afraid of the Sadducees' questions. So Jesus is ready for questions and he has the answers. When spiritual pride shows up within a church community, within a society, beware, because that leads to a misapplication of the scriptures. When the world is painful, never forget the resurrection. It does provide great hope. And above all else, we'll go back to verse 35. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age... Nobody is worthy to attain to that age on their own merits. And when you come into the eternal kingdom, and the question is asked, what makes you worthy to enter into this eternal age? What makes you worthy to enter into this kingdom? The answer is never I. But the answer is always He. He who is worthy, who we've sung about, has made us worthy by His blood that was shed, by, by giving us the faith to respond, and by faith with, through His grace, we are able to be made sons and daughters of the King and to have our sins forgiven and be resurrected into new life. So to be worthy for the age to come means to truly recognize Christ as He reveals Himself in Scriptures, to truly yield yourself in humility to the Scriptures and hear what He has to say. So we're going to sing about heaven as we close today. And I'd invite you to join us.
0: This is a new song. Um, like Tim said, it's about heaven. It's about celebrating the, the reality of the resurrection. And so... Um, you may want to listen for the first little bit uh, and then once we get to the chorus if you know it uh, please please join with us
2: how I long to breathe the air of heaven where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets.
0: to look
2: upon the one to save him and walk with him for all eternity and there will be a day when all will bow before him and there will be a day when death will be no more standing face to face he who died and rose again Holy, holy is the Lord
0: in every
2: prayer We prayed in desperation The songs of faith We sang through doubt and fear And in the end we'll see that it was worth it he returns to wipe away our of the faith and with one voice a thousand generations singing worthy
1: Just a minute, and I'm gonna um, introduce some new members this morning. So I'm gonna ask the Quinn family to come up and join me on stage, um, and Aaron Higgins is gonna come and join me as well. And uh, y'all just come up; we, we'll make some room up here. Come on, here, all the way on stage, so that you can be in the bright lights and the people at home can see you as well. Um, and Miss Danielle, there you are. Um, so. Uh, first, I'm going to start with Daniela and Aaron because they, they grew up in this church. But I want to, yeah, come over here. Um, many of you know Aaron, daughter of Mark and Linda Higgins, and Daniela, daughter of Mark also, uh, but Mark Hannah, and Mark and Marta Hannah. And um, they grew up in this church, they've been faithful. God has, um, has worked in their hearts and minds on their own to uh, make their own confessions of faith, share their own testimonies, and come at, before the church as members. Um, Daniela, after college, come home to serve in the church, worked in our office for a little bit, and really helped us there, and now faithfully serves as a youth leader on Sunday nights for us. Uh, Aaron, as a senior in high school, um, has said today in coming up here, she, they're saying, this is our church, that we have uh, learned what it means to follow Christ, learned the gospel, and received it. And now they're coming before us as members. And so it's a reminder to say that as kids grow up in the church, um, parents can join, but we want kids to join through their own testimonies. And sometimes that's with parents joining, and sometimes that's that's after the fact. So... Um, most of you will know Aaron and Danielle, but I'm still introducing to them because it's a, it's a big step in them becoming members on their own. And then over here, we have um, Josh and Sarah Quinn um, along with their children, Jenna and Caleb and Brody, maybe somewhere Um, But did we lose Brody today? I saw him. I know. Brody's the guy with the cast, so say hi to Brody somewhere. Um, But uh, Josh and Sarah, they've um, been coming here for uh, about a year, I guess, at this point. Um, They have backgrounds in two amazing communities of Jackson, Tennessee and Cincinnati, Ohio, so they just had to come here. Because um, we have literally, our, my, myself and them, have lived in the same three communities primarily. Um, but uh, Josh and Sarah are amazing. The kids are amazing. Um, you will want to get to know them if you haven't already. Um, but I wanted to introduce you to them, and there's going to be some more. We'll, we'll introduce some more next week and more and more in the coming weeks. And the steps for that are going to a new members class... And then joining by testimony, either written testimony or sharing your testimony with an elder um, for the purpose of membership. And we'll do another one. If you're interested at all in that member class, let me know. We'll do another one soon. So um, let me then, um, if you would, all stand. We're going to close it. I'm going to ask you, if you're here in the room, to come and say hello and welcome these new members at the end of the service. Um, But first, we're going to proclaim the blessing of the Lord.